Good evening and welcome. It's so good to see all of you here. And it's an incredible pleasure and honor to be able to think about the things we're going to talk about on this retreat this weekend over the course of the next couple of days in a Carmel populated by Carmelite sisters whose spiritual mothers include St. Teresa of Avila. And those of you who are familiar with her story, you know that her life was marked by a seemingly endless struggle against countless different obstacles, the first of which, of course, was her own lack of sanctity when she was a younger woman and how she had to struggle against that to become the saint that she eventually became. And she had many struggles. She had to struggle against poverty, against the uh, difficulties in her own religious order, the reforms that were necessary to be made. Uh, some of her own sisters who tried to thwart her efforts to reform the Carmelites, uh, secular powers, so many different things. One of my favorite stories about St. Teresa of Avila is where she was uh, fording an icy, cold, fast-moving stream of water, and the cart that she was in got overturned and she fell into the water and was drenched and all of her stuff went into the water. And as I remember hearing the story, she said to the Lord, words to the effect that, Lord, well, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. And certainly St. Teresa of Avila could get away with something like that. I would never say that to the Lord. But I'm struck by how she overcame this, the many struggles in her life by relying upon God and by being patient and persisting in doing what she felt God was calling her to do, and she accomplished many great things, as our dear Carmelite sisters can attest to. They're here today as a result of her efforts. So it's with that in mind that I'd like to share tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday, I'd like to share with you different chapters in a big struggle that the Catholic Church has been engaged in, and I'd like to focus on a certain era of time that deals with the what's called the Reconquista of Spain and Portugal after it had been overrun by the Moors, the Muslims who had uh, taken control of it. And then I will talk a little bit about how that set the stage for what would, would take place in the New World with Hernán Cortés and his defeat of the Aztecs and the shortly thereafter apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe and the role that that played in furthering the struggle for God's kingdom in an area that was very hostile to the message. And then we will move into the third act in the play, so to speak, which is the struggle that St. Junipero Serra went through for many years with a great deal of suffering and privation. His story is incredible. All these stories are incredible, but this story in particular is quite amazing. And I think it puts into sharp relief the perhaps minor struggles that we ourselves deal with every day, like traffic. You know, that's a struggle, but it's nothing compared to what some of the great saints had to go through to accomplish the will of God in their own lives. So as I studied and researched and wrote and prepared these talks for you this weekend, I was struck by how small and seemingly insignificant my struggles are in my own life. And some of them to me seem to be pretty significant, but by comparison to the things that others have done, I feel as though it has put them in perspective for me. 
And that's what I'd like to try to do, is to weave together these three chapters in the history of the church, the Reconquista of Spain and Portugal, the discovery of the New World, and in particular Mexico, and the struggle for Christianity in the midst of a pagan culture that sacrificed human beings and did many other terrible things, and then how from that building of the faith, that, that inauguration of the faith in Mexico, how it moved into California and the great heroism undertaken by St. Junipero Serra and others in the Portola expedition, for example, and how that led to really the formation of California, the infrastructure of California in its earliest stages uh, is largely due to the heroism and the struggle of those Catholics. So I'd like to sort of frame my remarks this evening by quoting Luke chapter one. This is the very first verse of Luke's gospel, chapter one, verses one through four. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. As you can see, St. Paul took care to take the different accounts of the life of Jesus from these eyewitnesses and put them into an historical narrative so that people, just like ourselves, would be able to understand the story from the beginning to the end, so to speak. So that's the goal that I have in mind. And the first of the talks that I'll give, this one, is on the Reconquista, the reconquering of Spain. Now, let's go back in time to the first few centuries after the time of Christ. So now we're in, say, the second century in the Roman Empire. The Catholic Church was experiencing intermittent but savage persecutions. We all know the stories of the martyrs of the Colosseum and the catacombs in Rome and the ways in which the Roman Empire would brutally attack and try to suppress early Christianity, which of course was the Catholic Church in its infancy. And by the time we arrive at the early fourth century, the Roman Emperor had permitted Christianity to come out from the catacombs, so to speak, and to not be illegal anymore and for Christians to practice their faith freely. And shortly thereafter, this emperor, Constantine, he adopted Christianity as his own religion and shortly after that made it the religion of the Roman Empire. So as you can imagine, the struggle that the early church went through with dungeon fire and sword and all the martyrs and the terrible sufferings that they went through to one day being the religion of the empire itself is it an incredible success story, the success going to, especially to the martyrs. And at that point, one would think, well then the Catholic Church has got it made, this is the best position it could possibly be in, but it was shortly after that that the Roman Empire began to be invaded from outside forces, primarily from what is now Western Europe. So we had the Huns coming from the east, pushing into Germany, uh, the, the Alemanni tribes, the Ostrogoths, the Burgundi, the Visigoths, the Vandals. There are so many different groups that came successively like waves into Italy 
And at first, they wanted to be assimilated into the Roman Empire. They wanted to have positions in the army. They wanted commerce. They wanted to live in the more advanced way that the Romans were living. They wanted to get away from the Huns. So at first, there was an effort to sort of assimilate. But by the uh, early 5th century, by the year 410, with the Visigoths, they had decided, well, we just want this for ourselves. So they sacked Rome and took it over. And they were just one of several different waves of invasion that took place. Now, in the meantime, the Emperor Constantine, back in the, in the early 300s, he had moved the Roman Empire from, the seat of the Roman Empire, from Rome to a fishing village in what is now Turkey called Byzantium. And he renamed it after himself, after he built this huge, beautiful palace and beautiful cathedral and fortified works and all of the splendid buildings, it was renamed Constantinople. And Constantinople became the cultural center and commercial center of Christianity as Rome in the West was being devastated by these successive waves of the attackers who came in. But that didn't last all that long because in the sixth century, Muhammad, he began to radiate outward with his followers out of the Arabian Peninsula. So by the early seventh century, he and his followers were attacking the Mediterranean world and taking things over very quickly, including the holy places in Jerusalem. Uh, Bishop Wall and I were in Jerusalem and in the Holy Land just about a month ago and actually went to many of the sites where the holy places changed hands back and forth between the Christians and then the Muslims and then the Christians and then the Muslims. And there's just an immense amount of history there. I'm just trying to give you a little tiny slice of this. So we see in the Byzantine Empire, the Muslims, they expanded outward and they eventually captured the Byzantine Empire and subdued it. And eventually the proud and mighty city of Constantinople became the seat of the Turkish Empire that would reign for many centuries to come. And Christianity was dealt a serious blow, not only there and in the Holy Land, but also in Spain, because as the Muslims began to fan out and conquer territory, they were looking more and more to Europe. And it was very easy for them to cross into southern Spain from northern Africa, and over a series of many different excursions, they began to gobble up from the south upward the Iberian Peninsula. So if you can imagine that situation of Catholic Spain and Catholic Portugal having been Catholic for seven centuries, St. Paul, as you know, he evangelized in Spain and brought the gospel to Spain. So the church goes back in Spain, back to St. Paul. St. James there, of course, the, uh, uh, the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, Bishop James can, or Bishop Wall can tell you about that because he's made the Camino, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 times by now, something like that, quite a few times. Is it, is it over 100? It's been quite a few times that he's been there. But the point is that the apostles... They were there in Spain, several of them, and brought the good news there. So that's how long Spain had been Catholic, having received the Catholic faith from the, some of the apostles themselves. Well, the situation was 
that for the next nearly 800 years, Spain was dominated by this alien culture with an alien language and an alien religion, Islam. And try to imagine what it would be like if something like that were to happen where your freedom to practice your faith outwardly, openly, to go on a pilgrimage, to go to church on Sunday and worship God in a place like this was curtailed to the point where you were not allowed to do that. You can imagine the pent-up anxiety and anger and frustration and zeal on the part of these Catholic folk who wanted nothing more than to have their lands back, but also to have the freedom of religion. And so for the better part of 800 years, there was this ongoing struggle for the faith in Spain. Now, eventually the struggle was concluded successfully, and I'll get to that in a few moments, but there are some fascinating and very vivid stories along the way. You all have heard of, of uh, St. Lawrence, the martyr, right? And you know how St. Lawrence was martyred, don't you? He was grilled to death. And everything that I've studied shows that he actually did say something like, you can turn me over now because I'm done on this side. He actually really did say that, which I think made them even angrier. So the story, the backstory with St. With St. Lawrence was he actually was a Spaniard and he grew up on a farm near a town called Huesca which is in kind of north central Spain a very rural and rather arid area not unlike parts of Southern California and his parents moved to Rome and he went with them and he became a deacon in the Church of Rome he actually was one of the deacons serving the Pope and this was a very common role that deacons would play is that they would be uh, ministers of service and they would have special duties that the Pope would give them. And it was during this time, during the persecution of the church, this is in the third century, that uh, the Roman authorities captured the Pope and five or six of the deacons who were with him at mass and put them in jail in preparation to martyr them. Now, Lawrence, he... Was a, he was let go by the authorities because they knew that he was the one who was in charge of the temporal goods of the church in Rome. So they assumed that he would lead them to this treasure chest or some repository of money or gold or something like that. And, and he said, well, just give me three days and I'll round up all the treasures of the church and I'll bring them to you. So they let him go. They didn't, put, they didn't execute him. And he wanted to die as a martyr with the Pope and the other deacons, but the Pope told him, you're going to be a martyr in due time, but just let us go in this group, and then you'll follow shortly thereafter. That was his consolation. So the Pope and the deacons were martyred, and a few days later, on the appointed day, the Roman authorities showed up, and they asked Lawrence to show them these treasures of the church and he had assembled the poor and the blind and the, the lame and all the, the poorest of the poor in the big crowd around him. And he said, here they are, here's the treasures of the church. They're right here in front of you. And they were so furious that that's why they gave him such a horrible martyrdom because he had tricked them and made fun of them. And so that's why he was roasted to death on a gridiron. Now, in the meantime, this ties in with the story of the Reconquista because he, actually I should say the Pope, had possession 
of the holy chalice that was used by our Lord at the Last Supper. And he knew, of course, that if this were to fall into the hands of the pagan Romans, that it would be kept in some Roman pagan's house or it would be lost to the church's future. So this was one of the precious things that he did entrust to St. Lawrence, who was able to have the chalice and a few other items spirited out of Rome, sent back to Spain. And the chalice has an historical pedigree that is well documented that stayed more or less one step ahead of the Muslim invasion. So when the Muslims arrived in the seventh century and they were slowly and sure, slowly but surely gobbling up land and conquering Spain little by little, the chalice had to be moved from place to place so that the Muslims wouldn't find it. And one of the places that it was kept is, is in a remarkable monastery in the north central part of Spain, not far from Huesca, and actually not far from the Camino, where the pilgrims walk across the top part of Spain to Santiago de Compostela. The place is called San Juan de la Peña, Peña meaning rock. And this is a, just an extraordinary monastery that is built in the crevice of a gigantic rock bigger than this church, much bigger than this church, and it is a kind of a rocky outcropping on top of a very remote and very inaccessible mountain area. And so this monastery was built. It's still there. You can go and see it. It was built in the crevice where the rock sort of came out like this and the, the ground came this way. And so it was impossible to see it. You couldn't see it from any direction. You couldn't find it unless you knew it was there. You couldn't find it. And even if you did know it was there, it would be very difficult to get to it. So the Holy Chalice remained there, untouched by the, the Muslim invaders for several centuries, and eventually it wound up making its way back to Valencia, where it is now. You all have heard of St. Vincent Ferrer, the famous preacher and uh, a, a very powerful um, priest who called people back to repentance. Well, in the, the cathedral in Valencia, where the Holy Chalice is now, and has been now for many centuries, that's where St. Vincent Ferrer was in that particular monastery attached to the cathedral. So you can go there to this day and see the chalice. The only person who's allowed to ever use it at mass is a pope. And both Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI have celebrated mass using the chalice as a way of uh, validating the truth that this is the chalice. But this is one of those interesting aspects of the Reconquista, and that is that these, not just these, these brave Catholic souls who struggled against this tyranny uh, were there, but also the aspects of our Catholic history, like the chalice, that had to be safeguarded. It's just an amazing and very edifying story, as you can imagine. Well, little by little, the, the different efforts to resist and eventually reclaim the Spanish Peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, they all seem to kind of coalesce during the reign of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. So she was the Queen of Castile, he was the King of Aragon, a lesser and poorer kingdom. See, at this time, Spain was not a country as we know it today. There were no countries in Europe like we know them today, but it was a series of kingdoms, and not all of the, those kingdoms got along, and not all of them were allied. But when Elizabeth, or I'm sorry, when Isabella and Ferdinand got married, 
then they were able to unite their kingdoms and reunite other kingdoms with them. And then they went to war in a very decisive way against the Moors. And at the Battle of Granada, they were finally able to expel the Moors from Spain. And Spain returned to its former Catholic glory. And this coincided with the rise of a certain fellow by the name of Christopher Columbus. Now, Christopher Columbus, as you may know, as the, as the old rhyme goes, uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, he would have sailed the ocean blue earlier if he had been able to convince the king and queen of Spain to fund his mission to the New World, his, his exploration of the New World. He thought he was going to find a trade route to India by sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, Little did he realize that there were two gigantic continents in the way, what we know as North and South America. He did not know they were there. And so a little bit of background about Columbus because as we see the Reconquista of Spain finally concluded after all these centuries and the Muslims have now been, been driven back, then we see the beginning of the movement of Christianity into the New World and specifically into Mexico. So a little bit about Columbus himself. Um, he, in a letter that he wrote to King Ferdinand, he said that he had begun to navigate as a sailor at the age of 14. Uh, he says that his first voyage um, uh, was at that age. He says he was at, at sea for 23 years. So that makes him about 19 years old when he first became a fully fledged mariner. He says that in his early days, uh, he was sort of a, um, um, a gun for hire. He wasn't a pirate. He wasn't doing illegal things, but he was also a bit of a freebooter. He was a bit of a, of a uh, swashbuckling sailor for hire kind of guy. So he seems to have had a rather colorful background, but he was also a very devout Catholic. He arrived in Portugal in 1471 and there he tried unsuccessfully several times to get the support of the king of Portugal because by then he had already had this plan about discovering the Far East by sailing west across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but he did not have any success with the king. He showed him his charge, he showed him his route that he planned to take, and there was no, no willingness on the part of the king of Portugal to do this. So then he went to Spain. In 1485, Columbus was in Spain, and two times he went before the Spanish court to submit his plans. And although many of the courtiers and, and influential people in the court of Isabella and Ferdinand, although they supported him, uh, and although the Catholic Church in Spain even loaned the Spanish monarch, monarchs 17,000 gold ducats to help fund this trip, they declined his plan. Now, this took place as Isabella and Ferdinand were gathering their troops in preparation to take Granada, which, is, which was the, the last Muslim stronghold in the southeastern part of Spain, a very beautiful, majestic, mountainous area. And I think this is why King Ferdinand decided that he wasn't going to bother with this exploration to the New World because he was so busy trying to secure the old world for the Catholic faith. He wanted to get that done. So Columbus, who it was always seemingly a, a day late and a dollar short, uh, he went to, or he thought about going to England and France 
to ask those kings and queens if they would help him. Uh, in 1488, his brother Bartholomew uh, tried to induce one of the several of these monarchs to accept this plan, and both King Henry the sorry King Henry the sixth, seventh, excuse me, of England said no. Uh, King Charles VIII of France said no. Uh, and so Columbus seemed to be stuck with his wheel spinning. There was nothing he could do. So he went one more time to the Spanish court. He appealed to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. This was in 1491. And for the third time, they said no and like, no and leave us alone. Don't come back anymore. We don't want to hear from you ever again. So he just... He was traveling with his son, so he figured, okay, that's it, I'm done. I can't, I can't go any further, I don't have any money. So he started wandering away. He uh, left Granada and he started to make his way back away. And he happened to reach the Dominican convent uh, around in January of 1492. Uh, La Rabida is the name of the convent. And it just so happens that the prior of this convent, this monastery, was uh, Father Juan Perez. And Father Juan Perez, when these two stragglers came along, said, sure, come on in, we'll feed you, we'll give you uh, a place to stay for a little while. And it just so happens that Father Juan Perez was also the confessor of Queen Isabella. So, I mean, does that seem like a coincidence to you? I don't think so. I think there's some divine intervention there. So Columbus, now, he finds out that this humble friar is the confessor to the queen. So he sets about explaining his mission to Father Perez and tells him what he wants to do. And uh, Father Perez says, you know, that's actually a really good idea. So he went to the queen and he said, I really think that you and King Ferdinand should do this. And it's at that point that they said, okay, if you, Father Perez, say that you think this should be done, then we'll do this. So Columbus was called back to the court, and he was given 20,000 gold ducats as his uh, starting money, his, you might say his seed money, to get things going. Uh, the queen granted this money out of her private resources. Uh, he was also properly outfitted before he saw the king and queen again, so his patrons made sure he had a very dashing naval uniform. And everything went smoothly such that by April, uh, the documents had been signed and he had been given his special mandate to go to the New World. Now, at that point, he began to make preparations and you probably all know the names of the three ships that he sailed on, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Nina is, is the correct pronunciation of the word. We say in, in English, Nina, meaning little girl. Um, this came up briefly on the radio show the other day and I find it very interesting that as it ties in later with the apparition of Our Lady Guadalupe, that you have a girl, Nina, Nina, Pinta, painted, and who is the girl who is painted? Santa Maria. So those are the three ships that Columbus took. So he had 120 men across these three ships, and he set sail. Now, before he left, he and his men, but he especially, received the sacraments of confession and the Holy Eucharist. Um, and, and he himself received the Holy Eucharist from Father Juan Perez, who was there to see them off. And Columbus and his crew 
and their little squadron of three ships, they set sail on August the 3rd, 1492. So imagine yourself on the open ocean from August the 3rd until the 12th of October when they finally spotted land and they came ashore in uh, an island in uh, the West Indies that was later named San Salvador. That's the, the name that they gave to the island. And when they arrived there, they met with Indians of the Arawak tribe and they um, immediately began to talk to the Indians about Jesus and they also claimed that land for the king of Spain. And I'm sure the Indians didn't really understand exactly what that meant, but this is the beginning of the Christianization of that part of the New World. Now the result of this first voyage, because Columbus made a few voyages, uh, aside from the discovery of what he now as an admiral regarded to be the approach to India and China, not, still not even realizing that this was a new continent and that India and China were an additional 6,000 miles beyond this or more. Uh, it was the establishment of a Spanish settlement on the coast of the island of Haiti and Santo Domingo now. Uh, he also made landfall in Cuba and uh, Hispaniola. So he sent uh, his ships back with many of the things that he discovered in the New World. He sent, including things like tobacco and maize and other things that he found there, he also sent back uh, those native peoples who wanted to go back and see Europe, he sent some of them back. And the king and the queen were so taken by this that they told him that they wanted him to continue his explorations and it was quickly discovered that he had not found the Indies or China, but he had found a new land. And this is very significant because the lands that he began to explore, and also the other Spanish and Portuguese explorers who came after him, they discovered very quickly that these lands were rich in silver and gold. Now, you probably have heard stories about how um, greedy and gold-hungry the Spaniards were. Well, there was a reason for that, and that was because Spain was a very poor country at this time, or kind of a fabric of different kingdoms in this country, and all of its metallic wealth in terms of tin and silver and whatever gold they may have had there had long ago been exhausted by the Romans, for whom Spain was a province and the Romans had sort of depleted all of their metallic resources to the point where they didn't really have any of those things. So when Columbus discovered, wait a minute, there's a lot of silver here, there's a lot of gold here, there are other minerals, but especially these metals, it became a really important strategic thing for Spain as it was in the throes of its, its eventual um, collision with England, both militarily and socially. So in 1493, Columbus made his second voyage to the Indies, and this time he took three larger ships and 13 smaller ships. He had about 1,500 men with him. Uh, he went back to Spain in June of 1496, and then he made his third voyage from Seville with six vessels. This was in 1498. Now, at this time, as we get to the kind of the concluding years of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, the monarchs died. In fact, when uh, Columbus returned to Spain for the last time in 1504, 
Queen Isabella died a few weeks after he returned, and then Columbus died about a year later. And his body was in a kind of a strange circuit. So he, his body was taken from Spain to Haiti. From Haiti, it was moved to Cuba. And eventually, from Cuba, it was moved to Seville, Spain. Uh, my wife and I were in Seville some years ago. And we went to just a church. It didn't seem to be anything special. It was a beautiful church, but nothing about it was anything that we had heard of before. And the, somebody, it might have been the priest or somebody in the church, said, oh, by the way, that room in there is where Columbus was buried. And sure enough, his tomb in the ground, he's not there anymore because his body was moved again, poor fellow, but he was, he was buried there for centuries, two or three centuries. He was in this little side chapel, and um, I honestly don't remember now where they moved him. <laughs> but he, uh, he was there and then had been moved recently. So that's his story. Now, you can see the reconquest of Spain, this gradual building up to the expulsion of the Moors in 1492, and all the struggle that the Catholic faithful went through, all the, the suffering and the martyrdoms that took place as a result of that. Eventually it was successful, and that launched this next phase, which was going to the New World. Now, tomorrow, I'm going to share with you the, the next chapter in the story, which has to deal with, after Columbus got there, what then was the, the next struggle in terms of the Christians, especially in particular the Spanish Christians, in trying to bring the light of Christianity to, for example, the Aztecs. Now, I know that, that some of you perhaps listened to my radio program, and you may remember on the 12th of December, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, I spent a fair amount of time talking about the, the collision between Hernan Cortez and his 250 men. I mean, he actually, no, he had a total, ultimately, of 500 men and how he went up against the Aztec Empire with hundreds of thousands of warriors. And I'll recap that story for you tomorrow. And as you'll begin to see, there's a common thread that runs through all these stories, and one sort of builds upon the one that came before it, that builds upon the next one. And you and I are recipients of the courage and the tenacity and the holiness of some of these people, key figures who are involved in this um, effort to bring the light of Christ to the new world. So tomorrow in my talk, I'm going to share with you what happened when Cortez first began his effort to quell the uh, pagan empire of the Aztecs with all the human sacrifice and everything that they were doing. And then that will pave the way for what happened with the apparition of Our Lady Guadalupe. There are many interesting things about that that I'd like you to know about. And then, in the talk that will follow in the afternoon, then we're going to go from that era into the exploration of California and how the California missions tie in with all this. How, how many of you, just to see, have ever visited all the California missions? Has anyone been to all of them? Just a few of us. Bishop Wall's hand is up. Okay, because he was with us on our pilgrimage to the California missions. It is unbelievable when you see all of the missions, and in some cases in very remote places, inaccessible places, but the wisdom and the way in which 
Father Laswen and Father um, St. Junipero Serra especially planned these mission outposts out and how they really became the backbone of the future state of California. Now the story behind that is amazing. It involves Russia, it involves all kinds of interesting details that maybe you might not have heard before, but all of it funnels back into the same motif that we're talking about tonight and for the rest of the day, and that is the, the struggle against adversity in order to bring Christ to people who need it. And I will conclude my thoughts by saying, yes, these are amazing stories, true stories of heroism and adventure and suffering and martyrdom and difficulties, but they are helpful for us, I believe, because it will help us see in a certain context the kind of heroism that the Lord is calling us to. Now, maybe you'll never build a mission compound, or maybe you'll never sail across an ocean. Chances are none of us will ever do any of those things. But you have in your own life certain obstacles and adversities and dangers and things that with the edifying example of these forefathers and foremothers who have come before us, you and I can learn from their stories and in a certain sense repurpose the things that they went through for our own circumstances and meet those challenges in the same way, bravely and with trust in God that they did. Thank you.